Welcome to the Innovation Roundtable Insights Podcast. This episode was recorded at an Innovation Roundtable workshop hosted by W.L. Gore and Associates in Newark, New Jersey in April 2019, where Tim Huffman sat down with Rita McGrath, Strategy Professor at Columbia Business School. Rita explains why organizations need to continually refresh their strategies in order to successfully innovate. During the conversation, she covers the challenges of capitalizing on opportunities and creating radical innovations, and sheds light on how grassroots innovation movements may overcome these challenges. Thank you for joining me today, Rita. Um, to just start off, could you tell me a little bit about your position uh, with the Columbia Business School and some of the research you've been doing recently? Sure. So uh, I'm Rita McGrath with Columbia Business School, as we like to say, in the um, very center of business. Uh, I've been there for a long time, uh, since 1993, and my research really covers the intersection between strategy and innovation. And increasingly, that also means it's touching on digital. So a lot of the research that I've done is looking at how corporations are responding to some of those massive changes in their environment. Great. Now, recently you published a book that's called uh, How to Keep Your Strategy Moving as Fast as Your Business. What was some of the inspiration behind uh, that name and also that uh, topic you wrote? Well, the, the main title for the book is actually The End of Competitive Advantage, and then the How to Keep Your Strategy Moving is a subtitle. Um, well, the End of Competitive Advantage really had its seeds in... Uh, strategy itself. And if you look at the history of strategy, what you will find is people running around saying what you want to do is establish a dominant position in a fast-growing industry, throw up entry barriers, and then you'll have an advantage that you can sustain for a long, long period of time. And what I found in my own research, uh, since I come at it from the innovation angle, is that the notion of a sustainable competitive advantage not only wasn't very representative of the way things actually are, but it was actually a trap. That um, what you found is that, um, that, that, that managers were deluding themselves, thinking their advantages were going to last a long time, and so they didn't prepare themselves for whatever the next act had to be. And I'm assuming that's why you picked in that the world's constantly changing, things are moving faster than ever. Mm-hmm. Is that part of why you also picked it as well? Sure, yeah. Um, you know, new technologies, new, new social norms, changes in the way people think about things, uh, changes in the way that we uh, make investments, uh, all that comes into it. And the pace is getting much faster. Great. Thank you for that. Now, how can large institutions um, actually institutionalize their radical innovation capabilities as opposed to simply being episodic or even sometimes just purely uh, just one innovation and then the capabilities are dispersed throughout the organization? Yeah, so the question of how do you build a real innovation proficiency comes up a lot. And I would argue that it's a, it's a journey, right? So it involves the right governance process. It involves the right funding models. It involves um, people and what they feel they're going to be rewarded for. And of course, there's a deeply cultural aspect. Are they hungry for it? Do they want it? Or are we kind of a reactive, backward-looking organization? And you can't change all that overnight. But what you can do is you can start to put in place the building blocks. And I think one of the fundamental issues that we need to address is the resource allocation issue, which is how do you get resources up against your innovative opportunities in a systematic way. Uh, I think the second thing is really your governance process, which is 
you know, who gets to decide what things get the green light, where they move in your portfolio, what they're doing. Um, and so there's some systematic things you can start to do to build that capability. And the analogy I would make is, um, you know, 50 years ago, if somebody had said, oh, what's your quality process, right? People would have said, oh, well, we hire very good people and we train them and we inspect everything. But we didn't know what the dynamics of quality were. We didn't know about Six Sigma. We didn't know about Duran. We didn't know about all those things. And today, you know, companies have very finely honed processes for ensuring high quality. Well, I think we're on the brink of having that with innovation, that people are now starting to understand what's the toolkit, what, are, what practices have to be in place. Uh, in fact, uh, at, at the conference, we had a lot of discussion about, well, here's the toolkit, right? Here are the building blocks, and here are the, the thinkers and the doers and the people that have made it real. Now, what sort of capabilities or what sort of personality traits do you look for for someone that can actually lead this change to actually institutionalize the innovation? Well, when, when I think about who are the people that are involved in this, um, I think of three different types of, call them types of leaders, right? So at the senior executive level, you have to someone who's a true believer. You know, they have to be firmly committed to the future of their company. They have to be able to explain to stock analysts, to other investors, why they're doing what they're doing. They have to say, hey, you know, this is where we're going, and if you're not on board with me, you're not the right I'm not the right company for you to invest in. So the poster child for that would be somebody like a Jeff Bezos, right, who says, look, you know, Amazon is going to make a lot of mistakes, but we're going to also find out a lot about what works. We're going to be that future-oriented company. At the operating level, you have the entrepreneurs, right, the, 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 in corp the corporate venture builders. And these tend to be people who challenge the orthodoxy. They're curious. They want to see change coming. They see, in many cases, they, they're the first to see the decline of the existing business, that things are really going to shift, and if we don't make a change, um, it's not going to happen. And then in the middle of those two, you have the people that I, I call them the organizational Sherpas. These are these are the guides. You know, they, they know the company. They know where the bodies are buried. They know how things work around here. And they're absolutely passionate about knitting together that, that sort of corporate parent with the new ventures. And they can be many different people in, in those roles, but I find those are at least three roles that are absolutely critical to the venture being able to thrive. Now, touching upon um, the leaders of large organizations, uh, previously there was a quote from you um, alluding to that powerful leaders can actually be an impediment to innovation. Sure. Could you elaborate on that thought a little bit? Well, if you think of how power is distributed in an organization, um, the people that get to the top, quote, quote, of the organization, whatever that means, are you know generally pretty good at something that got the organization where it is. And they can feel very threatened by something that is not consistent with that. So let's take um, a company, let's say, whose whole history and whole success has been based on chemical processing. And now some of the new ventures they're going into depend on electronic processing. Well, that's a different skill set. You know, it's a different library. It's a different background. So a lot of times you'll find leaders in something of a defensive posture. So that's one way. Uh, another way they can become an obstacle is uh, financial. You know, there, there's a long history of leaders making decisions that are great for Wall Street, great for the stock price, great for their own purses but not really benefiting the long-term best interest of their companies. And that's harder to spot because you can't see it in the near term, but mm -hmm. over the long term, you definitely see it. Now, that being said, is how can innovation, how can radical innovation be uh, grow through a grassroots movement or even an underground uh, sort of movement within an organization? So the question is bottom-up innovation? Yes. Um, 
well, bottom-up innovation is great. And what I find, in, in, in fact, this is something I write about in looking at strategic inflection points, is that to some degree you have to have that because that's where the changes are first going to make themselves felt. That's where the new ideas are first percolating up. But it's very hard to get to scale with just bottom-up innovation. Um, you really need at some point to have an alliance group to have a champion who's willing to say to the organization, look, this is important, we need to start doing something about it. But I think you can get started at the grassroots level, absolutely. Great. Now to switch gears just a bit, how can in a large uh, corporation, large, large organization, politics plays into uh, the day-to-day -day life of all the workers, be it if they're just dealing with colleagues, trying to move up the ladder? Now, how can someone survive politically that sort of organization if there's some large uh, failure or large error attached to them? So the question of the fear of failure and how that does that affect you politically, I think that really now comes back to the culture of the company. Um, so let's take Amazon just because that'll be familiar to people. Um, Amazon had one of the most horrific failures in their attempt to make a phone. You may remember the Fire Phone, mm -hmm. or maybe you may not. <laughs> but they spent hundreds of millions of dollars to create this phone because I guess Jeff Bezos thought he wanted to be Steve Jobs, I don't know. Uh, but the, the, the thesis behind this phone was that we want to be eliminating frictions between the customer and the purchase decision. So the more close we can get to the customer, the better. Well, it turns out people kind of liked the phones they already had, and the Amazon phone wasn't really an improvement. And so that was a huge failure. But out of that failure, they said, look, our hypothesis still stands, right? That the closer we are to the customer and the less friction there is between the customer purchase decision and the buy, the better. Um, so what, they took a lot of the technology that was in the phone and took it and put it into Alexa. And the way that they talk about it, right, is not, oh, you know, they say, yeah, the phone didn't work, but it wasn't, it was a big bet. It mm -hmm. wasn't a bet the company bet. I mean, it's a big expensive bet. But look at what we got out of that. You know, we learned a lot about how customers want to interact with our technology. We learned a lot about what will cause them to make an effortless purchase. We learned a lot about blah, blah, blah. And now we've got these smart speakers, which has been a huge area of growth for them. So the hypothesis was borne out. The particular mechanism that they used to get to it wasn't. And that carries very little political risk at a place like Microsoft. I mean, at, at Amazon. <laughs> that's interesting. No, that's very, that's very insightful that even through failure, you can still create great success, maybe not the next day, but down the road, certainly. Well, if you look at the history of corporate ventures, almost every single quite successful corporate venture followed on the heels of something that didn't work. So, for example, one of the greatest failures in history was the Ford Edsel, right? It was this car that nobody really wanted. Um, but what they learned when they were in market with the Edsel was what was it that customers really wanted? And from the ashes of the Edsel came the Mustang, which is one of Ford's most successful cars ever. Oh, wow. I never, I never knew that's how the progression went with yeah, that. Yeah. Another great example from history is the Apple Lisa, mm -hmm. which was the very first personal computer which had a lot of the bells and whistles of what we today know as personal computers. So it had a mouse, it had a graphic user interface, it had an integrated storage system, it had all this stuff. The trouble was it was released in like 1980 and it cost $10,000 and so nobody bought them. <laughs> but from what they learned doing the Lisa, eventually Steve Jobs and his team created the Macintosh, which was an affordable computer with many of the same features. Now, over the over all of your years of travel and research, how have you seen innovation change in its, either its scope, its focus, its speed, or have you seen any change? Um, so it's interesting when you think about how innovation has changed. I think the core 
theory of it really hasn't. And if you go back to the work of Robert Bergelman or, or before him, Joe Bauer, about resource allocation in firms and how do firms look for opportunities and the relationship of slack resources to growth, um, those things haven't changed. Um, what I think has changed is the broader recognition that this is actually a process that needs to be managed. The speed has definitely changed. The, um, the level of diversity of people involved with innovation efforts, that's changed. And I think the recognition that you have to be able to draw on diverse talents, that wasn't as much a part of the innovation process. I think the other thing that's happened with innovation is we're a lot broader in how we define it. You know, innovation used to be seen as a pretty technological thing. You know, you're inventing nylon or something. Uh, today, innovations are as much about services and experiences as they are about physical, tangible things. That's great. Now, we have just enough time for one more question. Um, I understand you've recently published a new book, uh, Seeing Around Corners, mm -hmm. How to Spot Inflection mm -hmm. Points for your business before they happen. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell me a little bit about the book and some of the inspiration sure. behind it? Well, the inspiration for the book came because of the last book, which was End of Competitive Advantage. And everybody wanted to know, well, how do you know? You know, How do you know <laughs> when it's ending? How do you know when it's time to shift gears? Um, and that was really the impetus for this. And it got me thinking about those strategic inflection points, which are those moments when your business really changes. And um, so the book is really in three parts. It's how do you see it coming? How do you decide what to do about it? And then how do you bring the organization with you? So it's very consistent with the themes from the previous book. And I think the good news is that when I study actual strategic inflection points, those big changes, they take a long time. They mm -hmm. feel like they come upon you immediately, but they've usually been brewing for a long time. And there's the strategic opportunity. Yeah, it certainly sounds like a great read. Um, we're out of time, but thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. A pleasure. Video version of this podcast can be accessed via innovationroundtable.online. The Innovation Roundtable online network is your portal to a wide variety of exclusive content, including video presentations, interviews, insights reports, and articles. Not only that, innovationroundtable.online is also a place where you can connect with other corporate innovators, share experiences, request collaborations, and gain inspiration from your peers. Our network is exclusively for innovation practitioners in large firms. So visit innovationroundtable.online to discover more and request your seven-day free trial account.